Well, open your Bibles to Genesis 37 if you're not there already. We read our passage that we're going to cover this morning. Back in the 90s, I remember reading a story about a, an anti-hunting advocate that was somewhere upstate. I don't remember whether it was New York or Connecticut. I went back and tried to find the the article so I could be specific, but, but the, the story had such, a, uh, such an impact on me. I remember the, remember the details. This, there was this woman that, that was trying to solve it, the problem of hunting in, in her mind. It was, it, was, it was a great burden to her of what she called this yearly massacre of beautiful white-tailed deer. And so she took a large parcel of land and paid to have it fenced in, like a chain-link fence, so high that the deer couldn't, uh, couldn't get over it. She wanted to create this venison utopia, I guess. Rules were absolutely no hunting or harming any animal on the property. And for the first couple of years, everything seemed wonderful. She watched the deer graze and run and do what deer do and she was very happy to see the little deer being born in her animal sanctuary. And while all of that was great, she didn't take into, a, uh, into account a very significant fact about, about nature and limited space. After several years without being, being thinned, the deer multiplied rapidly and they overpopulated the area. And not wanting to harm any of the animals, she just allowed it to continue to to uh, go as it was, and over a period of time, the food supply dwindled, and the, the deer were born smaller and weaker, and then deficiencies were introduced into the, into the herd, and the population eventually got so large that the deer began to starve, and disease set in, and, and in the end, the entire herd got sick and died, and there were no longer uh, any deer inside this this sanctuary. They said whenever the fishing game actually came in, uh, there was not a stitch of vegetation on the property. It looked like a locust had been, uh, had been through. The, the starving deer had eaten anything that, could, that they could eat uh, all the way up to where they could reach on their, on their hind legs. So it was like this green canopy. As far as the deer could reach up, and outside of the fence, but everything inside of the fence and up to that point was, was just brown and, uh, and dead. And that, that story, as I was preparing to intro Joseph again, has two points. First, it's a, it's a reason for responsible hunting. Second, and more importantly, it's an illustration of what can happen if you if you treat the Bible as a book of morals and, and miss the gospel. If you read the Bible and pick only the low-hanging fruit and, and don't look for what God intended you to see about Him and His great plan of redemption, you will eventually run out of food. You will eat all that you can eat on the ground and all that you can eat is high up on your tiptoes and you'll be locked inside of an interpretive fence because you'll, you'll begin to... L- think that's how you interpret the Bible, only seeing man, only seeing what to do or, or not to do, and, and you'll get stuck inside this, this moral, moral trap 
where it's the Bible is only how to live and not how Christ lived. <laughs> and it will fill you for a while, but eventually you'll get hungry and spiritually weak and then starve. And the Bible is a book that tells us right and wrong and how to live for sure, but, but there's much more than that in the Bible, isn't there? I mean, if the Bible only told us right and wrong and how to live, it wouldn't be good news because we can't live right. <laughs> the gospel is good news. The good news that God came and rescued us because we can't live right. There's much more to the Bible. More to build your faith in God who loves you, who's been working since eternity to fulfill good plans for you. And, and the story of Joseph is a link in that chain of how God is fulfilling good plans for you. And last week we introduced the life of Joseph and talked about two temptations that you have whenever you, you, you read a narrative passage, specifically like Joseph where he's such a good guy and it's so easy to see how, how he did nothing wrong and everyone else was wrong. And as God is walking toward the captivity of His people in Egypt, we, we don't just want to bump into the tree and fill our baskets with, with this application of, of morality or allegory. I mean, you want to, we want to grab hold of this tree of Jacob or of Joseph and, and shake until the redemptive thread comes out, until the, the next link in the foundation of your faith falls. We're going to walk through each chapter, and we're going to look at chapter 37 today, and this is really where the journey begins. It's, you should think of each chapter in the story of Joseph as, as, uh, as a scene in a play. And we're going to see the first scene the, this morning. And then in the end, after every chapter, after showing you what God is revealing in the scene, I'm going to give you some implications for, for us today and, and for, for life. The story of Joseph, as we saw last week in Hebrews 11, 20, 21, which tells us the point of the story is a story of faith and, and fulfillment. And in this first scene, you're going to see the characters. The characters that's going to trace all the way through the rest of Genesis are introduced. You're going to see the conflict introduced, and you're going to see this conspiracy that, that God uses to bring His people to, to Egypt, to rescue them. Joseph, before dying, declares the exodus and affirms his faith in God's promise to redeem, giving instructions concerning his bones. That's, that's the point in the, in the hall of faith in, in Hebrews 11. He did that while there were only a few descendants when God promised Abraham descendants that would outnumber the sands of the seas. 400 years before God raises up Moses, Joseph declares this. Joseph declares, by faith, God would fulfill His promise of redemption. And so he wanted his bones to be carried out in the Exodus and buried in the land of, of, of promise. Joseph's bones remained in Egypt among the people for 400 years. And in the Exodus, you find Moses... When he leads the people out, Joseph's bones are right there. Now think about this. His bones were there for 400 years as a reminder to the people when they went into bondage of God's promise. Joseph's bones were there. Somebody carried Joseph's bones through the Red Sea. 
His bones were there the whole time they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. His bones were there when the people, when Moses went up on the mountain and the people rose up to play and serve the golden calf. God always has a witness and something to encourage our faith in His promises. And Joseph's going to teach us something about that. We're going to look at each of those, those three points uh, in detail. And the first one is the characters are, are introduced. The journey begins and the characters are introduced. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the, the history of Jacob. That's the first thing that the writer wants us to see. There's so much detail in this first chapter. It would be hard to get through it all, so which is why I told you to read it before you came in this morning. And if you don't get this detail, if you don't see how this, this journey is launched and you don't pick up these, these interpretive clues, then you're going to get lost the rest of the story. The next chapter is not going to make any sense whatsoever whenever you get to, to Judah and, and his sin. And here the writer tells us this is the story about Jacob. It's not the story about Joseph. Have you ever noticed that before? This is the story of Jacob, the last patriarch. It's not about Joseph. This is the history of Jacob. But Jacob's not really talked about very much, is he? I mean, for the next, I don't know how many chapters, the whole thing is about Joseph, and Jacob seems to take a minor role. But God says that the whole point of this story is about Jacob. This is the story of Jacob. And this is important not to miss. Jacob is the last of the three patriarchs Moses is using to show how God is fulfilling his promise. And the point here is Jacob's story cannot be told without Joseph. Odie Bacham in his commentary on Joseph says this, God's promise was to make Jacob, Israel, a great nation. But Jacob has neither the character nor wisdom to become what God intends, but God will raise him up in spite of himself. And the person that God will use to raise up Jacob is Joseph. Jacob is such a mess that there's only one of his many sons that's worth his salt. It's the one that God uses. Now think about this. Think about this. This is the story, this is the history of Jacob. Think about this in the light of God. What is God telling us about himself and about man and about redemption? Can you think back a few chapters? Who's the one that chose Jacob to begin with? Who's not wise enough or have enough character for God to use? God is the one that chose Jacob. Chooses him over Esau. He did this knowing that Jacob wouldn't be able to fulfill what he intended, but he chooses him anyway. God will now use Joseph to rescue the line. It's even, now think about this, it's even Jacob's sin of favoritism that sets all the events in motion that leads Joseph to Egypt that God uses to save Jacob to begin with. Now that's a big God, isn't it? Joseph, the obedient son, is introduced next. Very next word after this is the story, this is the history of Jacob, Joseph. He's going to play a big part in the history of Jacob. 
here the obedient son is introduced. We get all the info that we need about Joseph and the issue that will issues that will run through the rest of the story just in these few verses. Joseph is 17 years of age. He's not the son of a concubine. He's he's not with with these other sons of of Bilhah and Zilpah. He is a shepherd. It's his occupation. He's a good son, evidenced by by his willingness to reveal to his father his his brother's sin that could ultimately harm the the family business. You see that at the end of verse 2, Joseph brought a bad report of them to to his father. Verse 3 tells us about Joseph, that he was favored by his father, and you can clearly see that as the story goes on. That's probably what you remember about the story. Joseph in the coat of many colors, the, the coat of honor, the coat of blessing. He was favored by his father, and he was given this, this garment declaring his favor. Verse 3, Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a, a tunic of many colors. People go back and forth whether this is an ornate robe or whether this is a this is a lo, uh, ornate tunic or whether this is a long-sleeved robe. And, and that's really not the point. The point is, it was a sign of Israel or Jacob's intent to make him the future leader of the household. And that's the purpose. He gives him this coat to declare long before, this is the guy who's going to, to be over his brothers. And Joseph is not the firstborn. Just like Jacob was not the firstborn. Reuben is. After Joseph is is introduced after we're told this is a story about about Jacob, the disobedient brothers are now presented. Here's a contrast. Verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Over and over from verses 5 through verse 11, you're, you're going to see that, that hatred. Through the rest of the story of Joseph, you're going to see this, this wickedness that is within the other brothers coming out. The story immediately sets up a contrast between Joseph and the brothers. They envied him. They hated him. This, this, this last phrase, they could not speak peaceably to him, means that they couldn't even talk to him without hostility. I mean, I can't even look at you. If I if, if if I even see you, it makes me angry. And the only thing that I can the only thing I can say to you is, is hateful words. There the stage is set. You got Jacob. It's the story about him. It's the history of him. Joseph is the main character, and he's contrasted to the disobedient brothers. And then immediately you find this conflict that is introduced that we'll trace through the rest of the story, verses 5 through, 5 through 11. The conflict comes from, from three places, the text tells us. This conflict between Jacob and his, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph and his brothers comes from three places. The first is Joseph's righteousness. The passage builds an intensity describing where the conflict comes from. Verse 2 tells us that, that, 
this conflict comes from Joseph's righteousness. Joseph brings a bad report. Now, some try to use, to paint, use that to paint Joseph in a, in a bad light, saying that he was some kind of, of uh, tattletale and he's trying to get his brothers in trouble and that, that he never should have done that. But, but, but the text doesn't say that anywhere. As a matter of fact, Joseph did nothing wrong to earn the hatred of his brother. A bad report, an evil report, simply means that Joseph was reporting to his father exactly what the brothers were doing. I mean, the father has to send Joseph after the brothers to find out if they're okay for a couple of reasons I'll show you, show you later. I mean, here it, Joseph is showing concern for his father, concern for the family, the family household. And Joseph's righteousness brings conflict between him and his brothers. The anger that the brothers are feeling is because Joseph exposed their sin. You ever been on the receiving end of someone's anger for, for them getting caught over their own sin, but you were just part of revealing that sin? You ever been a casualty of, of that, been blamed when you did nothing wrong other than give an accurate report of someone's sin? Their anger over getting exposed is, is directed at you. That's the beginning of the conflict. Beyond that, there's conflict from Jacob's favoritism of Joseph. Joseph's righteousness, Jacob's favoritism. Jacob favors Joseph and makes a garment that exalts him over the other brothers. And while Joseph is innocent in that, Jacob's not. Jacob foolishly plays favorites with, with his children. Jacob, who has already received that same treatment from his father. When his father chose Esau over him, he does the exact same thing here. Again, I've, I've read in, in just the numerous commentaries in, in preparing for this, for this series, and some have tried to couch the, the hatred of Joseph in this, in this code as as Joseph being management and the sons were labor. So Joseph's wearing the suit and the sons are the laborers. It's like, it's like this, you know, uh, union uh, worker versus management here. And, and that, that's, I don't, I have no idea where they get that, but that's, that's there. Um, Others who try to say Joseph eggs them on by, by being an arrogant, spoiled brat. You get this picture of him of him walking around with his coat of many colors. See this? See what Dad gave me? There's none of that in the text. Joseph is never presented in a bad light in this entire story. In fact, he's nothing but an obedient son. It's his obedience that is contrasted against their wickedness and their disobedience. It's Jacob and the brothers who are presented in a bad light. It's the brothers who, who show conflict and anger toward him because he tells the truth about them. It's Jacob who favors Joseph and the, the brothers are upset at Joseph because of what Jacob has, has done. The text clearly says that they hated him because his, their father loved him more than all his other brothers in verse 4. It doesn't say anything that Joseph did. And then lastly, this conflict is introduced because... 
God's dreams are misinterpreted. This conflict comes from God's dreams. Look at verse 5. It says, Now Joseph had a dream. That's not abnormal. You have dreams all the time, right? None like this, I would guess. This is significant in the book of Genesis because this is the first time God speaks or reveals through a dream. It's significant because Joseph is not one of the three patriarchs. And prior to that, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God appears. God speaks. God reveals Himself, not in a dream, but through a vision of himself, and here Joseph has a dream, and these dreams are not just bad, you know, uh, bad pizza or indigestion. This is this is God revealing something specific about what He intends to do in the line of Abraham, and there are two dreams here. Two dreams emphasize the surety of what's going to happen. When you see two dreams now, when you see these two dreams later, think of it as Jesus saying, verily, verily. It's, this is going to happen. But the second dream adds something that the, is left out of the first dream, which gives us an idea of what God is saying here. Now, if you read the rest of, of the story of Joseph, you know what this dream is, is about. But pretend you don't. This is just introducing... Conflict comes by misinterpreted dreams. And here's the first dream. They, in verse 7, they were binding sheaves in the field, and then, behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And the brothers said to him, here's their interpretation, Joseph was excited to share the dream. He had a dream. He told it to his brothers. And they hated him even more, verse 5 tells us, because of the dream. So he says to them, please hear the dream. Hear the dream that I've dreamed. And then in verse 8, the brothers' interpretation. Shall you indeed reign over us? That's how they heard it. Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams. The conflict increases as you go through the story. The bad report to the favorable cloak robe to now the dreams. And in verse 9, there's a second dream. And he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, I, I dreamed another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him. And now Jacob is misinterpreting the dream. What is the dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers come and bow down on the earth before you? And his brothers envied him. But his father kept it in his mind and pondered on it. Now, what are these dreams signaling? Are they signaling that God's going to exalt Jacob to some type of human position? Or are they revealing something more? The dreams were not bad, but good. <laughs> The dreams were signaling that God would save Jacob and his family through Joseph. Not that he, per se, would be a ruler over him. That's, you can see that very clearly in the second dream. Look at the second dream. He dreamed another dream, 
And now this is not just the brothers bowing, but this is the sun and the moon, father and, and mother. Now, if you know your Bible and you know the book of Genesis back in Genesis 35, Joseph's mother is dead. So here's a dream that God is giving about his mother and his father. His mother dead, his father living, and his brothers bowing down before Joseph. And notice what the dream is about. Sheaves, is it not? And what are sheaves? What, what, what does that represent? It represents food. What these dreams are saying is there's a famine that's going to come and God is going to use Joseph to save the entire line, the living and the dead of Abraham. And God is going to use Joseph to preserve the line, but because of the wickedness of the brothers and the wickedness of, of, of Jacob, they interpret it completely as negative. Neither his fathers or his brothers get it, but the dream is a prophetic declaration of God's intent to save them, but they're blinded by their sin, and so they see it as a curse. And the conflict is now set in stone, and you move into the conspiracy. The third point. Look at verse 12. You may have an intermission about here if this was a, one of Lori's musicals. Curtain comes back up, and a conspiracy is introduced. This is all the introduction. The journey is set in motion. And we're told all of this information to orient us properly towards the story. Verses 12 through 36, the rest of the chapter. Verse 12, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, Here I am. Significant words. Every time those words are used in the Bible, signifies immediate obedience. Here I am, Lord. Send me. You think of the the words of Samuel. The obedient son's journey to Shechem, you find in verse 12. Jacob calls Joseph and tells him, Your brothers, you're, you know, you know where your brothers, they're not here. They're out, they're out pastoring in, in Shechem. And I want you to see, I want you to go see how they are and bring me back news. Now, remember, Joseph is 17 years of age. The Hebron Valley, where the family is residing, is about 50 miles from Shechem. And he goes out on his own as a 17-year-old boy to find where his brothers are shepherding the flock. They're grazing. And when he gets there, the brothers aren't there. He meets some guy in the field and he says, Who are you looking for? He says, I'm looking for my brothers. He says, oh yeah, they went up to Dothan, which is another 13 or 14 miles. The entire journey would have taken him four to five days to get there. Some have asked if Jacob knew that the brothers didn't like the other. I mean, the dad's got to know that, that there's conflict in the family, right? 
So if he knows that, why does he send Joseph out there to look for his, look for his, his, his brothers? Why would he send them out into the field? And, and the answer is found in where they're grazing. Look at what it says. They went to feed their father's flock in, in Shechem. The reason Jacob sends Joseph to check on the other boys is because of where they're at, and he hasn't heard any word about them. Again, if you know your Bibles, you know back in Genesis 24, there was a little problem that happened between the sons of Jacob and the guys in, in the town that later became called Shechem. The sons of Hamor violated the sister, their sister, Dinah, and let's just say that the sons of Jacob didn't make any friends whenever they left that deal. In a skillfully devised plot, after convincing the men to circumcise themselves so they could marry the daughters of, of, of Jacob, Simeon, and Levi, wait till the third day until the worst of their recovery had set in, and then they go into the town and they kill every male in the town and pillage the place. That's why Jacob is concerned that he hasn't heard from the brothers and why he sends Joseph out on this, this journey. They're out grazing and there's no word about them. Nobody's checked in. Have they fallen under retaliation? I mean, he doesn't know. There's, there's no internet. There's no texting. There's no word. So, so he sends the faithful son on a journey to find the disobedient, disobedient brothers. And, and when Joseph is called on, he says, Here I am. He says, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers, well with the flocks, and bring word back to me. So he sent him out to the valley of out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to to Shechem. It's interesting to note Joseph is is coming to his brothers because of their father's concern for them to make sure that they're safe. And they're so blinded again by their own wickedness, just as they were blinded by wickedness and couldn't see God's promise in the dreams. Now they're blinded by their own wickedness and they can only see their father's favoritism of Joseph and actually set out to do him harm when he came to do them good. You see this constant contrast going back and forth. And now the disobedient son's scheme is introduced. Look at verse 18. So he leaves Shechem, goes to Dothan. And verse 18 says, Now when they, that's the brothers, saw him afar off, even before he came near. The writer's emphasizing that to us. They said to one another, Look, here comes this dreamer. This dreamer is coming. The one who's been given prophetic dreams. Come, therefore, let us kill him and cast him into, into some pit. Stark contrast, Joseph's trustworthiness and obedience. There's a hate-filled, conniving brothers. They seem afar off, and the first thing that they think is murder. The writer tells us long before they know why Joseph is coming, they conspire to kill him. These are some wicked, wicked brothers. It's their first inclination. Not, maybe he's bringing word. Let's kill him. 
And let's not just kill him, but let's bury him in a, in a cistern. The word that's used here for a pit, and the word that's used for throw means, the word for pit is a cistern. It's like a water container. And the word for throw is literally, let's, let's, let's bury a dead body in the grave. Let's, let's bury his body in a cistern is what they're saying. Let's kill him and bury his body in a cistern. Cisterns were, were uh, these bottle-shaped caverns where you had this narrow shaft that was dug down, would open up. And that's how they would store water in in these in the limestone caves, and and they would they would plaster the inside so the water wouldn't wouldn't get out, and they'd put a rock on top of it. So all you have is a little hole on the top, and then this long shaft, and then it would open up into this big area, and then they would take the rock off, and they'd lower a pitcher down into the where the water was, and they'd pull the pitcher back up, and they're gonna they're gonna kill him, stick his body down in one of these one of these places. And the text tells us that it's the dry season, so there's no water found in them right now. And then you see Reuben, verse twenty one. It says when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. Reuben said, Shed no blood, but cast him in the pit. Now now before you begin to you know, think, man, Reuben, maybe he's not a bad guy. You need to understand why Reuben's doing what he's doing. Reuben's the firstborn. He suggested not killing him and burying him in a cistern where people could find him. They should put him alive in a cistern in the wilderness. Notice verse 22. Reuben said, shed no blood, but cast him in this pit or in this cistern that is in the wilderness. And do not lay a hand on him. that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. Why did Reuben want to bring Joseph back to his, to his father? Reuben is just as conniving as the other brothers. He's, he's using his brother's hatred to scheme for his own benefit. He was the firstborn and wants the blessing that Jacob, uh, Joseph has received. And he's been out of favor with his father since his affair back in... Genesis 35, and he sees an opportunity to regain Jacob's favor. That's the reason he tears his robe at the end. He plots to save Joseph in order to benefit himself. He's going to go retrieve him later, put him out in the wilderness where nobody will see, and he's going to return and become the hero to to his father. Look at verse 23. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers stripped Joseph of his tunic, a tunic of many colors that was on him. And they took him and they cast him in the cistern. And the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. The brothers agree. Reuben's got a good plan. They beat him up, strip him, put him in this deep, dark cavern. While he is in the pit naked and hungry, they're callously enjoying a meal around the fire. Casual, undaunted by their brother's plight, relaxing. And now the story is going to take yet another interesting turn that is tied to the book of Genesis. 
ear the rejected son's partnership in this whole twisted plot. Verse 25. They sat down to eat a meal, and then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. What a coincidence. Traveling with their camels and spices and balm and myrrh on their way down to to Egypt. I mean, there's so many twists and turns in this first chapter in the plots, it's, it's hard to really keep up with them. The boys casually sitting down for a meal nonchalantly happened to look up and see a caravan coming. And this time, not Reuben, but Judah. Both Reuben and Judah are going to be talked about later in the story. He speaks up and says, hey, let's make some money off this guy. Here's a caravan. We can, we can sell him. The other brothers say, great idea. Let's get some money out of him. And they think it's just a happy coincidence that a caravan is coming by. What you should not see is coincidence, but but providence. Where were the sons supposed to be uh, grazing? Shechem? Where did they end up? Dothan? Dothan just happens to be on the normal caravan route from Gilead to Egypt. The route that people travel to take spices back and forth. And the writer tells us that that's exactly what this caravan of Ishmaelites are doing. They're taking spices from Arabia down to Egypt. They sell him to the company of Ishmaelites. And look at verse 28. The Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled up and lifted out of the pit. You've got Ishmaelites and Midianites. Midianites are the the offspring of Abraham and Keturah. And Ishmaelites are the offspring of Abraham and Hagar. Neither one are from the line of promise. They're both lines rejected by God. So here you have Joseph from the promised line being sold by scheming representatives, being sold to scheming representatives to rejected lines being taken out of the promised land to the land of Egypt, which for the rest of the Bible is associated with oppression, sin, and bondage. Bodibacham again concludes, The story ends with Reuben realizing his plan to regain his position with his father was thwarted, the coat of many colors destroyed, the father who picked favorites has his favorite taken away. And the one that God has revealed in a dream would be used to save the promised line has moved farther and farther from the land of promise since the story began. And the whole thing ends in verse 36 where he's in Egypt. It's a pretty big story, isn't it? So what are some things that you can take away from this introduction as all the players are introduced? Here's some implications for your life. First thing I think that you should see is obedience doesn't always bring success or ease. Doing right doesn't always bring success or ease. Verse 37 is filled with lessons of jealousy and angry uh, anger, favoritism, contrasted with obedience to, to Joseph, but that's not what God wants us to see. It's 
It's horrible that, that Jacob picked favorites. It's pretty stupid after what he went through when Isaac chose Esau against God's plan. The brothers should have remembered their, the story of Cain and Abel <laughs> and remembered what anger would have, would have brought in their life. But those are not the facts that God is highlighting in this first chapter. It's a story of, of man's failure and God's promise. God will have to rescue His promise from Jacob and the brothers in amazing ways. And that rescue operation lands Joseph in Egypt. Not to mention the entire line of Abraham in Egypt. You see, if you take the approach to, the, to this story, it's about obedience of Joseph and the wickedness of Jacob and the sons. Before long, it's not going to make sense. Because Joseph is perfectly obedient and he's rewarded with great hardship. He ends up far away from the promised land. You may not have realized this, but when Joseph sets off on the obedient mission of his father, when he leaves the land to go look for the brothers, that's the last time his feet ever set foot in the land of promise. He never returns until his bones go back there again. And all Joseph is doing is being perfectly obedient to what he's been commanded to do. He leaves home on the mission given by his father and he never returns to the land. It's not a feel-good story about where the hero is victorious. It's a, it's a tale of redemption. And Joseph pays an unthinkable price for a purpose that's greater than, than himself. And it's very important you understand that as a believer. Because if you get caught up in the and the idea of health and wealth is going to come to you and blessing is going to come to you just because you're obedient to Jesus, you're going to get hit smack dab in the face with the reality of life. That you can do right and people will do wrong to you even because you do right. You're called to follow God. I'm called to follow God and obey God because He is God, not because of what we may receive in the end. Now, we know all things are going to be made right in the end. I'm talking about on earth. <laughs> Second Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly will what? All who do right, all who do wrong, all, right? If you fail to read Joseph rightly, that, that reality can be, can be lost and the second implication there is, while all that's true, knowing God makes, makes that all right. Because He's fulfilling His, His promise. I would add that to the end. Makes it all right because He's fulfilling His promise. And I think the second implication that you walk away with about the knowing God makes it right, God accomplishes all of this in spite of us. I think that's the, that's the, the second thing that you take out of of the first chapter. It's the story of Jacob. Joseph has to be used. He leads Joseph to Egypt. He'll lead his grumbling people out of Egypt, even trying to return to Egypt. Aren't you glad that God accomplishes His purposes in spite of us? <laughs> it's not because of us, people. It's in spite of us. 
do right because of God. And then know that God is working something even if you get wrong in return. And that whether you do right or wrong, the promises of God can never fail. So you put your faith in where your bones are going to lie. (laughs) Put your faith in that your bones are ultimately going to end up in the land of promise. Not that you're going to be exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh here in life, because Pharaoh is not your God. This world is not your home. And the Lord is fulfilling His plans. And you see God's hand moving through the wickedness of man. He's moving His promise along. And He does that when we can't do that for Himself. And in the end, that's really all that matters. I promise you, you're not going to sit in heaven and wonder about how you were obedient but ended up in a cistern. (laughs) Man, that was unfair. Bummer. You will see clearly and be so overwhelmed by the glory of your Savior and you'll see all that you weren't and that you'll have nothing but praise for Him through all eternity. And that's what God wants us to see in these stories. There is nothing but praise for the God that you love and that loves you and that you're serving. And it gets uh, even more interesting in the very next chapter, verse chapter 38. It came to pass that the time of Judah departed from his brothers. And he does some really, really bad things, and we will cover that next time. We'll cover it in the text. We'll cover it truthfully and delicately, but I'm giving you forewarning of what is coming if you have little ones that you would rather read the story to.